You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Raymond Goodland on Sunday, January 2nd, 2022 at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. And good morning and happy new year to all of you. My name is Raymond, for those who don't know me. Uh, maybe you limped through 2021 and you've limped into 2022 and, and that's okay, you're here. You're here, we're all here together, and uh, this new year is, is sort of like a new opportunity for us. Now, before we actually get into Psalm chapter 1 together, um, I should say that there's actually some uncertainty among scholars. Biblical scholars go back and forth on, on exactly when this psalm was written and by whom. One popular view is that it was written by King David, which is, which is kind of like an easy you know, if you're going to bet on someone having written a psalm, David's a good choice. I mean, he wrote half of them. We, 75 of the 150 are attributed to David. And that would put the writing of the, the, the time of the writing around 1000 BC or 950 BC or so. Uh, I personally think that this psalm was written much later by someone other than David. I've got a couple of reasons for that. The, the first really doesn't count. It's just that I think the fact that he's, he's already attributed with 75, exactly one half of the Psalms, is perfect. And you don't want to mess that up. That, but that, of course, has nothing to do with anything. The, the real reason that I think this Psalm was written later by someone else is actually found in Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 5 through 8. Now, now it's not going to come up on the screen. I didn't have time to get it there for you. But if you're interested, you want to follow along if, in, in those pew Bibles that you see there right in front of you. This will be on page 645. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 8. Listen closely. Remember what Brandon and Lindsay just read for us in Psalm 1. And listen closely. Jeremiah says there, starting in ver- <clears throat> verse 5. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man. And makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert, and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness, in an uninhabited salt land. On the other hand, verse 7, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Sound familiar? Sounds exactly like Psalm 1, wouldn't you say? Now, here's why that's important for the scholarly debate. Those of you who are are geeks like me and you you like this kind of a thing. Jeremiah prophesied in the southern kingdom of Judah at the time of the Babylonian exile. He was there when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came and burned the city to ashes in 586 BC and then took some of the Israelites away captive. Well, if Jeremiah did not actually write Psalm 1 himself based on the similarities here, or or really, he would have had his scribe Baruch do it for him. But if he didn't write this psalm himself, my my sense is that his words in Jeremiah chapter 17 at least inspired the 
human author who came after him. But of course, I, I don't even know why I went through all of that. I just, I just figured it would be useful for some of you who geek out on this stuff like I do. Uh, it has absolutely nothing to do with our reason for studying this passage this morning, except to say this. While there is some uncertainty about the human authorship and the time of writing when it comes to Psalm 1, there, there is no uncertainty about its timeliness or its message to those of us who listen to it this morning. So as we prepare to read this together, let's take this new year as a new opportunity to reject what the Bible defines as wickedness, to walk on the path of righteousness, and to trust God for His grace at every step of the way. In fact, let's pray one more time as we prepare to hear God's words, hopefully with fresh ears and ready hearts. Lord, we we ask you now just to clear any distractions from our minds. Make our hearts ready to receive your word with faith. And let your word have its desired effect upon us so that we would be much more like the evergreen tree that we read about here in Psalm chapter 1 and in Jeremiah chapter 17. Help us to be those who hear again with faith. And it's in your name that we pray, Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Psalm chapter 1 divides the world into two groups of people who take very different paths, two different paths through life. And as a result, they experience two opposite outcomes or destinies. And as far as Psalm chapter 1 would point us, all of this can pretty much be traced back to one very important distinction or difference between the groups. So hopefully as we go through this together, we'll kind of see all of that, maybe not necessarily in that neat order, but as we go through the passage, uh, one one phrase, one part at a time, hopefully God will direct our hearts to, to things that are most helpful to us this morning. We begin to see the two groups right here at the end in verse 6. Look at Psalm chapter 1, verse 6 with me. It says there, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So on the one hand, we have the righteous, and on the other hand, we have the wicked. There, There are lots of different ways to draw a line through the human race and to end up with two different groups. We've been doing this as human beings for as long as human beings have been interacting with each other. For instance, we could could look at wealth and we could draw a line in such a way that we speak of the rich versus the poor. I think more recently in our culture, it's been very common for people to draw the line in such a way that we speak about the oppressors versus the oppressed in a a kind of updated... uh, updated take on the traditional Marxist framework for the world. We could also, even more recently, and perhaps rivaling that in popularity, we're starting to see a line drawn in such a way that we speak about the vaccinated versus the unvaccinated when it comes to COVID-19. But when it's all said and done, the most important line that will ever be drawn through the human race is the one drawn by God himself. And when he draws that line, the resulting groups on either side of that line will be, as Psalm chapter 1 says here, the righteous and the wicked. 
And those two groups will, will experience very different outcomes and destinies in this life. In fact, if you, if you look with me at verse 3, what we read there as we look at the portrait of the righteous person, as it's rounding off, the Bible says there in verse 3, in all that he does, he, everybody, he prospers. At the end of verse 6, we're told that the way of the wicked will perish. And, and it won't simply be the way of the wicked that will perish, but, but you can read and understand that to mean the wicked themselves will perish. That will be their destiny as well. And so the righteous will prosper, the wicked will perish. And this is not something simply confined to the Bible or to the past. This is the case today. This is the situation for us in our lives as well. Now, why is this the case? Why will one particular group of human beings perish while another group will prosper in the most ultimate and eternal sense? If you look at their lives on the surface, often there, there are many similarities between these two groups. Even sometimes you, you can find very real similarities and commonalities in how nice people are, how, how agreeable they are, how kind they can be at various times, how sacrificial at times. It, it's not like we're saying one group is a group of ogres and the other group is a group of angels. That's not the point here. Why then does the Bible speak this way? Why does it say one group will prosper while the other perishes? And what does the Bible have to say here about what distinguishes one group from the other? Verse 1. Let's, let's start at the top and let's, let's walk our way down. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Blessed, that, that, that opening word blessed is actually plural in the original Hebrew. You could actually read this to say blessed upon blessed, or overly blessed, overwhelmingly blessed is the man characterized by these things. You, if, if, you, if you've read 1984, you could say double plus blessed is this guy. I got a few who, who've read it. But blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And, and just very simply, I don't want to miss the forest for the trees here. There is value, I think, in, in walking through this as many do and seeing maybe somewhat of a progression between walking in the occasional piece of advice of the ungodly who might steer us in a direction opposite of God's will to the point where we're now standing in the way of sinners. And it takes on a bit of a more permanent feel to it. We're, we're now standing and more deeply entrenched in this, ultimately to the point where we're sitting in the seat of scoffers, perhaps even mocking and scoffing at God's word, and, and we are now fully participating in the lifestyle of the ungodly. I don't, I don't discount the value of maybe seeing it that way, but it's easy to miss the bigger picture in the forest if we focus too much on those trees. And the bigger picture is this. The first thing that we're told here about the righteous person that distinguishes this person from what Psalm 1 would refer to as the wicked is the fact that the righteous person who ultimately prospers in all that he does refuses to be unwisely influenced by the counsel or the voice of the ungodly. 
refuses to be guided and governed by a voice that does not agree with the voice of the one who created him or her. And let me give you an example um, of what that looks like in real life. Uh, take, take two unmarried Christians, two unmarried professing believers, and um, they're, they're getting to know one another. They, they're discovering there's a mutual interest here. They like each other. Things are going pretty well. They, they start to think, you know, there could be a future here for us. Perhaps this is, this is designed to go all the way to marriage. And so one says to the other, you know, I think we should take our relationship to the next step. Let's move in together and live as roommates. Let's give our relationship an opportunity to see how compatible we are. I mean, after all, if we're going to be married, we'll be sharing a a, a living space for decades, a long time. We We should give ourselves a chance to see if that will actually work or if we'll just drive each other crazy. Let me spoil the movie for you. You will drive each other crazy. I mean, what did you think would happen if you locked two sinners in the same place for decades? Uh, you know, you're going you're gonna to go through this experiment. You're going to say, oh, this, this can't be right because you do something that annoys me. Well, well, have you talked to any married people? And of course, my wife doesn't do anything that annoys me, but, but she... She must have a very hard time going through life. But, but you very commonly find advice like that coming from those who are not very familiar with God's will or who certainly don't surrender their lives to God's will. It just seems like a very natural thing to do, very logical. I, I remember being a, a 20-year-old man in a relationship with a young woman and before I was a Christian, I, I, I remember thinking how normal and natural this sort of thought process was. It just seemed to make sense. You know, of course, I, at that point in my life, you know, when I was in college, I, I actually, I got saved. I became a Christian. Jesus broke into my life. It began to change everything. I started to read his word and, and new thoughts were being brought to my mind. I was being confronted with truth I had never considered and it reshaped my convictions, uh, and this was one of them. You know, but I, I have found in, in speaking with, and I would say in particular, younger Christians today, that this is, a, this is no longer a conviction that we can take for granted. Um, and again, I, I don't speak by way of trying to, to put guilt on anybody here for the past or the present. I, I speak primarily just by way of, of providing guidance from God's word and, and God's spirit, I, I have noticed that we, we are in need of some, some reteaching on some of these things. And so I, I've often, in, in counseling younger people uh, through these questions, I've, I've tried to point them to things like Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. And there in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3, I'm going to give the New International Version some, some love here and read that, that passage from the New International Version. It says there, but among you, speaking to Christians, after saying that we should be imitators of God, it says, among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. 
There, there shouldn't even be, for those who know us the best, who get to observe our lives most closely, there, there should not even be a question in their minds, not even a hint that this might even be possible. That such immorality could be possible. What is so common in the rest of the world, uh, it, it's not proper for God's people, and this sort of thing should not even be a, a, a suggestion or a hint that troubles the minds of our friends who, who have a, a vested interest in our purity and, and our relationship with God and the witness that we have to a watching and listening world. I'll, I'll also point them to, to Jesus himself. And if you listen to the way that Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew chapter 6, you'll, you'll hear something important there. As he goes through that, what we often call the Lord's Prayer, and we get to the end of it, there's this petition to God where we, see, we say, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation. In other words, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, is directing us and saying, when you communicate with God, when you pray, when you are asking him to help you in your daily lives, to make sure that you're walking in the right direction, when you pray, ask him to lead you not into temptation. It is characteristic of our heavenly Father and, and the Spirit of our God to lead us away from temptation and not into it. If you are, are going to throw yourself headlong into perhaps the most tempting situation you could possibly find yourself in, living together side by side all the time prior to being married, can you possibly convince yourself that you are keeping step with God's spirit and his guidance and following his lead when he clearly says that I lead you in the exact opposite direction? Some have left our conversations not only convinced, but willing to take action, difficult action, sometimes costly action. And I've said to people, look, financially, this will be harder for you to do what you now believe is correct in God's eyes. The church is here to help. Let's see if there's somebody, let's see if there's a young woman, let's see if there's another family, let's see if there's somebody who can house you so that this financial burden doesn't fall on you entirely. If you will take this step to honor, love, and trust the Lord and to follow his guidance, we're here to help. We'll figure it out together. You know, don't let that be the thing that stops you from walking in the path that God prescribes and that he cuts out for you. And so there's one example of just what it, there are countless others, but one example of what it looks like to follow, not the counsel of, of the ungodly and the wicked, but to, to walk in a, in a path that is guided and governed by the voice of God. So those who are righteous, again, refuse to be guided or governed by the voice, the strange voice of the wicked. They will not let that voice lead them astray. Rather, there's a different voice that guides and governs the life of the righteous person. Look with me at verse 2 of Psalm 1. It says there, of the, the righteous person, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. One of the big things that distinguishes the righteous from the wicked here in Psalm 1 is the fact that the righteous person, the righteous man, the righteous woman, and we'll come to what righteous does and does not mean later, but the righteous man or woman in Psalm 1 loves 
trusts and listens to the voice of God more than he or she does any other voice. I've had a lot of time to think about some of the things that have happened within the body of Christ. This has happened, of course, more broadly beyond the body of Christ over the past two years. Um, but, but as a pastor, I, you understand, I tend to major on and focus primarily on what's happening within the body of Christ. That's my, my particular assignment by the grace of God. I've had a lot of time to think about some of the things that have happened. And, and fortunately, the majority of what we've been able to observe is Christians pressing through and enduring with one another in love through a difficult season where we have become more aware than ever of the differences in the way that we think about secondary matters. We, we have discovered that we are not like-minded on a million different issues, but probably only on about 10. And if we spend most of our time... Um, Whatever you get when you subtract those two, well over 990,000. But if you, if you spend the majority of your time thinking about those things where you are completely different and it's sometimes opposed, how is that going to impact your relationship? Fortunately, fortunately, I think the majority of what we have seen, again, is, is Christians enduring with one another in love and persevering, uh, maintaining the unity of the bond of peace that we, we have in Christ. There, there has been another side to the coin, however. I, I, I can't deny that. And, and so I've had to ask myself, how, how did such close friends so quickly become enemies? What happened? How did relationships that were flourishing because of their common love for Christ all of a sudden become so strained or even severed? And I think the undeniable answer to these questions is the fact that there there came the entrance of another voice, a voice that began to be trusted by one and not the other, a voice which began to define right and wrong and what our moral obligations are for the one but not the other. And, and it's always been this way, hasn't it? You've read the Bible, many of you. If, if you just picked it up and started in Genesis, even, even if you didn't quite make it through all the genealogy stuff, you at least got through this, the story of the garden. How did it happen there? How did our relationships with God and with each other first, first come to be destroyed? Wasn't it the entrance of a strange voice? which began to be trusted when it should not have been trusted? Wasn't it? Is it any different today? What would have happened if we had just kept listening to the voice of God? What would have happened? Let me pull that into our time. What do you think will happen today if we major on and primarily meditate on His voice, whatever the equivalent is of his blog, his podcast. Whose voice do you love to listen to? Whose voice do you delight in hearing? 
So much so that you can't wait to hear it when you wake up in the morning. Now, I've had to learn that from my wife, that voice is certainly not mine. <laughs> Don't want to hear any voice that early in the morning. How many times have I heard that, are, are you talking to me? <laughs> like, really? It's been 15 years at this point. Are you talking to me? Uh, who, whose voice do you trust to define for you what is right and wrong? Whose voice determines what is of supreme value to you, worthy of your pursuit at perhaps even the cost of your life? Whose voice gives you your marching orders and again determines what our moral obligations are in this world? Friends, sometimes it really is this simple. If you get nothing else out of this morning, the the voice that we meditate upon the most The voice that we love the most, the voice that we trust the most, again, and meditate upon, that is the the, the voice that we have on repeat in our minds that we listen to over and over and over again throughout the day and night that we turn over in our hearts, that voice will determine the direction of our lives. We will walk according to its counsel. And it won't simply determine the direction of our lives, but the quality of it as well. Look at verse 3 of Psalm 1. What does the psalmist say is true about the one who finds delight in the Word of God and who meditates upon it day and night? We get an illustration here now. First of the righteous and then of the wicked. And here in verse 3, we get the, the piece that pertains to the righteous person. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. There's an evergreen quality to the life of the righteous person whose soul is intimately joined to and connected to God. He's stable. He is planted. And again, notice, it's not, it's not the tree that's so special here. It's where the tree is planted. By the streams of what Pastor Tim Abbott spoke to us of last week. The living water. The, the, the water for the soul. That constant and steady and consistent uh, source of refreshment and, and nourishment that our souls so desperately need. The streams of water. He is like a tree planted by those streams of living water that God sends out for the constant refreshing and nourishing of our souls to keep us from drying up and burning out. He yields, she yields fruit in its season. There's not only a stability but a fruitfulness. There's Because of the life of God flowing through ours, our lives produce, they are fruitful, they produce the thing that God created us to produce, the fruit of his spirit, the the increase of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and that's not an exhaustive list. You wouldn't be wrong to attach things like humility and endurance These things in abundance and in increasing measure begin to flow through our lives. And, and, and the production of these things is not, 
is not dependent upon the conditions or favorable conditions in the world around us. It has everything to do with where the roots of our soul are planted. If they're planted in God or not. If they access the steady stream of his living water or not. You can be an evergreen tree and still dry up if your roots are not immediately connected to the source of God's provision for your soul. In, in fact, I've got one of those in my house right now. Which, by the way, we've got to get that thing out. <laughs> you understand, again, it, it, what really matters here is the intimacy and the connection of our souls with the source of our very life, health, stability, vitality, God himself. And we, we access this by God's spirit through his word. It's the first place that we turn to find that. This righteous person is stable, fruitful, useful to others in what he or she brings forth from her life and, and very enduring. Again, her leaf does not wither. You know, even in seasons when other people seem to have, um, seem to have lost the signs of life, the color and the beauty and the vitality, the, 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 those, those displays of the signs of life that we can look at and see, you know, there's life here. Even in those trying times and seasons, the evergreen soul, vitally connected to the nourishment of God, that evergreen soul still continues to display the signs of life. Not everything's easy. It doesn't doesn't mean we don't suffer some of the same things that others do, but as we suffer, we, we suffer with a kind of humility and perspective that is itself a display, an ongoing display of those signs of life. There's an evergreen quality to us. Our leaves do not wither. In all, in all that the righteous do, he, he prospers, she prospers. The exact opposite, verse 4, is true of the wicked. You could just pretty much take the exact opposite of everything we just read in verse 3 and, and reverse it, and there you have the portrait of the wicked. The wicked, verse 4, are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Now, the picture here, of course, is of the, the harvesting of wheat, where you, you take the, the wheat, usually a winnowing fork, you toss up the wheat in the air, and the heavy, substantial, useful grain or grain of, of, of over the kernel of, of grain, that falls to the ground and you collect it, but the chaff connected to it, the very light, inconsequential, unsubstantial, worthless chaff flies off with the wind. And, and God says here that the wicked, in one sense, from heaven's perspective, are like that. They're like the chaff that just is blown away and forgotten, useless. Weightless, nothing of significance or substance, not in an eternal sense anyway. But are like chaff, unstable, tossed in the language of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, every breeze that blows through the every breeze that blows through the church, every breeze that blows through the culture, it, 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 they're always moved. Just driven away by any wind 
that passes through. Verse 5, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. They won't be there. And leave it to the great Charles Spurgeon to say this more eloquently than anybody else. He said, sooner would you find a fish living in a tree than the wicked living in paradise. It just won't happen. Again, not because they weren't nice to a few people. Not because in some ways they weren't better than those being described as righteous here in terms of their actions. But as Jeremiah put it, blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord. That's who we're talking about. Whose trust is the Lord. And cursed is the one who makes man his strength. Who trusts in mere men. It's a difference. Who we trust, whose voice guides and governs our lives. And the psalm psalm ends in verse 6, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let Let me speak, first of all, to those of us who are Christians already. Some of you are sitting here and you're saying, you know, I, I agree with everything the Bible says here and, and everything you're saying this morning. Well, maybe not everything, but most of it. Right? Okay. I, I agree. I just, I, I've tried this before. I just can't be that kind of person. I can't live up to this. I'll I'll end up quitting before most people quit the gym in early February. I, I just, I can't do this consistently. How, how do I actually go about making myself delight in the Word of God? Well, I suppose you can't. I haven't been able to figure out how to do that. If you figure that out, please let me know. You, you can't make yourself delight in the Word of God. The good news is you don't have to do that. You don't have to conjure up this delight. You simply discover it. Let me I'll give you an example. Think about your favorite food. Or, or your favorite dessert better. I don't, should I call that food? Your favorite dessert, your favorite treat. Think about what that is. Get a picture of that in your mind right now. Would it be fair to say you have some delight in that thing? Demetrius, it's not beet juice. I know that for sure. That's, a, that's an inside text amongst the staff. But, but, but think about your favorite food or treat. You delight in that thing. Now, how did you come to have that delight? You, you ate it. You, you took it in. And you discovered that it delights you. Your taste buds are such that, your body is such that when you take that in, you experience delight. It's the same thing with God's word. If your soul has a taste for the better things of God because you have been converted to have that taste for God, if you belong to him, you will experience delight in his word when you take it in. Not always to the same degree on every morning, but I'm not, that's not what I'm talking about. But delight will be there. 
In fact, Jeremiah, he said this again. When he's not the weeping prophet, he's saying things like this. Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16. He says, your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. They became to me a joy and the delight of my heart when I ate them. And then he tells us why. For, because, I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Because I am yours, because I belong to you, because you have converted my soul, because you have put a taste in me for the better things of God, because of that, when I take in your words, I delight in them. They are a joy to me. Friends, if you belong to the Lord, just take it in. Take his word in. It will be a delight, and increasingly so. And, and one final note, and, and, and in particular, I'm thinking about those of us who may not be Christians yet. It's really important for us to remember, and, and really all of us, for all of us to note, this psalm doesn't give us a prescription for how to become righteous. Hear this, this is very important. This psalm does not give us a prescription for how to become righteous. It gives us a description of the one who is already righteous by faith. All right, even all the way back in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, when God took Abraham outside and said, look up at the stars, count them if you can. Hey, trust me, that's how many descendants you'll have. I know you think you're old. I know you think this is not physically possible. I can do anything, and I'm going to use you, and I'm going to cause all, look at, look at all these stars. You'll have more descendants than that. And the Bible says in Genesis 15, verse 6, that Abraham, at that time Abram, believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. It's always been by faith. It's always been by trusting in God, trusting his voice. When he speaks, saying, I believe. I don't see how that's going to happen, but if you're in the picture and you're actively involved, I trust that it will happen. Mary said it this way, let it be to your servant according to your word. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And in Romans chapter 4, we, believe, we, we read that it's the exact same thing for all of us today. This was said not simply for Abraham's sake, but for all of us who will trust the very same voice. The, the voice of God speaking to you now through his word. Don't let the fact that my voice is being used distract you. The same voice reaching out to you now. This is a description of the one already righteous by faith, and it says that in some ways, the person, the person who is righteous according to Psalm 1 is, is like an evergreen tree. Even in those seasons when harsh conditions strip others of the signs of a flourishing life, this person's soul is consistently nourished and refreshed by God, and the evidence of his life within them is still displayed even in those difficult times. The same can be true of you. But if people like us, whose sins are well known to God, if we are ever going to be counted among the righteous, we're going to have to look to an entirely different tree, the cross of Jesus Christ, the only perfect and only perfectly righteous one to ever step foot on this planet. 
You and I will never fully measure up to the portrait of the righteous person here in Psalm 1 or any other part of the Bible. We, we won't even measure up to our own expectations for ourselves. Jesus does, however, live up to this portrait. In fact, it's a portrait of him. Jesus is the righteous one who perfectly delights in God's word at all times. Jesus is, and notice I said is and not was, Jesus is the one who was never pulled into sin by the voice of the ungodly, as close as he got to them to do them good. Only when you and I are spiritually joined to Jesus by faith, only then, can his righteous life begin to flow through ours. Jesus died in our place to pay the penalty upon the cross for the the sins that we had committed, the penalty that our sins deserved. But he was raised to life on the third day. And now he offers us his full pardon, full forgiveness, and perfect righteousness as a free gift when we trust in him and surrender our lives to him. Let me ask you, What keeps you from doing that this morning? And think about what what, what would actually keep you from the blessed, blessedness and the blessing of becoming Jesus' follower, our Heavenly Father's child. What would keep you? I, I promise you, if you let that thing go, and flee to take hold of the the hope and the promise given in Jesus Christ, you'll never regret it you will be like an evergreen tree. Your soul will flourish even in the most difficult of conditions in this world. And and you will produce through your life, God will produce the fruit, um, the, the things that others need to take their first taste of so they too can delight in the Lord Jesus Christ and know the beginnings of what they will experience and enjoy for all eternity. Let's pray together. Father, we we thank you so much um, for the fact that you draw near to us and that you plant us by streams of living water, that our souls would always be nourished. We pray that you would cause us not only to, um, to take your words to heart this morning, but that we would meditate upon them throughout the day and even the night. And that, Lord, you would give us practical guidance and help in each other when it comes to taking our next steps along this path of the righteous. We look forward to this year and to what you will do in and through us. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Raymond Goodlett at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.